You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, this is part two of the long-form podcast interviews with the hosts of Reply All. Uh, this time I talked to PJ Vote. The show is brought to you as always by MailChimp. Welcome, PJ Vote. Thank you for having me. Uh, you are one of the hosts of Reply All. Yes. Where did the story that ended with you being a radio host begin? So I was in college and I like, you know, had sort of vague ambitions towards writing fiction, nonfiction. I wasn't sure. And then I was on a trip with some people like sophomore year or something. And we were driving and listening to the radio. And it was This American Life that was about black boxes like that was the theme of the episode. And, and it was like they were playing cockpit recordings of planes that went down. And I remember like somebody else in the car tried to switch the radio station. And I just like switched it back. <laughs> and like it was just like that feeling of like, oh, whatever this is, like I like this. Yeah. And I want more of this. And so then I like, I think like everybody's how I got into radio stories, like something like that with This American Life or Radio Lab. But I just like listened to all of it and loved it. And then. Like when I, I wasn't a very good student, but uh, I did like the school paper or whatever. And I would just, I applied to be an intern, not really expecting that they would accept me, but I got accepted to intern at This American Life. And so I dropped out of college and went and interned. Um, and it was like the absolute greatest. And then out of there, I was able to get a job temping it on the media, which is like a another NPR show and was there for a while and then started TLDR with Alex. I did the same thing. Uh, I'm a little older than you, I think. I, at one point, got a torrent that had every single This American Life episode. I, I think I know. Was it... And the torrent has a... Um, the picture of Ira is like kind of unflattering. Yeah. 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 I that that torrent may be the most influential file <laughs> in the history of audio. Yes. I would burn it. I would burn the episodes onto CDs. And the way it worked was like the CD was 74 minutes and the episodes were 60 minutes. And so I'd burn an episode and a quarter and and like so I, i'm from philadelphia i'm from suburban philadelphia and i went to school in montreal so i do these 14 hour drives and i just be like okay i can bang out like probably 15 this american lives um yeah just the whole catalog because also that torrent there's a few episodes in the beginning that like are not available online now i think because they're just like ah, eh, that one wasn't great or whatever yeah but that's actually 
if basically part of the reason you're listening to something you love is to start to figure out how on earth they made it, the early stuff where they're figuring out is like so much more valuable because you can hear some missteps. Because mm-hmm. when it's perfect, it's just like it's like a box without any seams on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's some of the choices in the early This American Life seem really strange retrospectively. Like I've always thought it's strange that they have David Sedaris bits on there because they're in a different tone than the rest of the show. Yeah. But when you go back to the early episodes, lots of things are in a different tone. Like the tone is more broad. Well, partly it's like he literally invented a language and a form. And part of it is like, I think the thing that people don't always acknowledge about that show is that every five or six years, it becomes a completely different show that has the same hosts and this, a lot of the same people making it and the same title. But like This American Life 1995 to 1998 is a show. 99 to 2001 is a show. After September 11th, it's a really different show. After the economy crashes, like it's amazing. And it, and like I think about it so much because it's just like the fact that they've managed to build something that comes out every week and that like that the people making it are thrilled to be making it and are like because the hardest thing is to feel like we got to do another one. And like that show, they have done so much without it feeling like rote. Do you know what I mean? So I did the exact same thing, but nothing clicked with me where I was like, I should go do that because I was like, that's not an industry. Oh, that's yeah. one show. There's no number two player. There's no, um, this isn't a, like, unless all these people die. Yeah. There won't be a spot for me doing something like that. What what were you thinking? I mean, I, were you just thinking I have to get a job at This American Life because they're the only people who do this kind of material? I didn't. So I loved it and I listened obsessively and I like made everybody around me listen obsessively. And it, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that it would be like appropriate <laughs> to like want to work there or in that field or anything like that. And then I was like talking to my college girlfriend and I was like doing an impression of Ira of like an episode of like a fake episode and she was like oh those stories that you're making up those sound good you should think about doing that and I don't know if it was like some weird if like my joke was like a trying to like audition an idea of a thing you would do you know what I mean like yeah. where you're like oh this shirt's goofy right I yeah can't wear it, right? it's so silly why <laughs> why don't let me go out like this unless you like it <laughs> but like I don't know. So people around me gave me sort of permission. And then the other thing was like, I was like thinking about this today because I was trying to remember. I loved listening to it and I felt like it felt like painful to be on the other side of radio. Like it felt like, oh my God, these people are smart and thoughtful and I'm listening to them talk and I want to be, if not in that conversation, like in the room behind that conversation, like I feel like there's a place that would feel really good that I'm not in. And like, I want to figure out, it feels like this monolith (laughs) without any doors, but I just want to like tap on the monolith until like, I find like a little something, you know? And I also was like a very poor student. And what, what, what does that mean to you to be a poor student? Were you not trying or I I wasn't very disciplined and I didn't really understand. I wasn't my all time low GPA, which is not where I like, sort of it got higher but I, I was like a 1.6 for a bit yeah like bad I've seen I've heard you t- like <laughs> I, I, I'm familiar with your works 
It's hard for me to imagine that you had a 1.6 GPA. I, well... I just, whenever someone tells me that, I assume that they're, like, really stubborn or something. I think that I was insecure. I had, like, young man insecurity where you're so scared of failing that you don't try and you fail a lot and you don't acknowledge that you're even failing and you're like, I don't care, I don't care. I got, the things that I was smart at was I was smart at coming up with, like, very complicated inventive ways to not have to take finals to get them rescheduled mm-hmm. like i like i pioneered this thing where when you had a final paper that wasn't ready i mean pioneered i'm sure a lot of other idiots came up with this idea but i would open an mp3 file in microsoft word and you just get like garbage and then i would like write in the garbage like a header and some random words uh, and save it and just send it you got into like creative like computer failure okay i'm getting a better picture so you were kind of dabbling in failure yes you were like i could not show up i could like send weird fake files well and i felt like panicked like it didn't feel like fun and cool like i was just like not yeah i'm yeah for some reason there's something about working in radio where it feels like being back in like a good english class with a good english teacher Mm. um but i did not have that in school and so it was like okay out there, there's a place where there are people who just like feel like home to you. Um, you need to get, <laughs> you need to get there. So when you're, you're like trying to make the jump from having listened to a bunch of stuff to like, hey, here's my funny radio voice. Like, check it out. Do you hate it? What What do you do? Do you buy a USB mic? What What does a young person who's dabbling in the radio art start with? Uh, fortunately, I didn't. I mean, fortunately, just for my own like pride, like I did not make a lot of things. Like basically, what I did is I was like, "All right, I want, I need to learn journalism, so I'm going to do the school paper." And so I did a lot of school paper, which was not teaching me. I learned a little bit about reporting. I didn't learn the thing I wanted to learn, which was like story. And so I'd read a lot, like I'd read a lot of like screenwriting books, I guess, and I'd read a lot of like screenwriting blogs, and I'd read a lot of long form stuff, and just trying to figure out you know, why is this interesting? Where are they starting the story? Like, how do they, why is this working? You know what I mean? And I, and I was like very, very hungry for interviews because the, the cool thing about radio actually is like the people who are very good at it are super, super candid about their theory of what they're doing. And so like, I'd read like Transom, like Transom is this website where people who make radio will talk about their technique and like totally like Ikea level, here's how to do it. And you could read, you know, Alex Bloomberg saying when you go out to do an interview and someone is talking the way they think they're supposed to talk, you know, like a, using words nobody uses to sound smart in NPR and you want them to be a person, try saying this. And like Nancy Updike would talk about radio writing is different from print writing and like this is what it has to feel like and here's how to like write to tape. And even though when you're doing stuff on your own, you do it wrong the work felt like a monolith, but there were all these people who were like, okay, the monolith is made of like these five ingredients arranged in this way. It's a more like friendly, like I feel like really great writers are not like, here's the trick that made, you know, the power broker work. Like really it was just about structure. And this was the dumb structure trick that like, once you know this, you too can try it at home on your stupid experiment. So like I interviewed your, uh, your co-host, yeah, Alex Goldman. And he said, we report these stories separately and then we tell each other the story. 
And right there, for a person who's coming out of college who wants to do a story, it's like, well, thank you for like giving me that format. Now I don't have to experiment with <laughs> 75 other ways that you could tell a story in audio. I mean, it's so wide open. It's like there's not even a like, this is how essays that I've seen are generally structured. Like it should probably start with this idea. It's a really blank canvas. Yeah, and like, it's funny, I feel like, and I don't know, I mean, probably writing is similar, but a lot of radio to me, like trying to learn it has felt like just having having done enough of them that when you start reporting a story, you think, okay, structurally, my guess is knowing what I know now, this is going to be a combination of like this piece and this piece that we worked on and like this thing that I heard once. And then like three weeks later, you're like, oh, I was totally wrong. I think it's more like this thing. The flip side of there being structures you can follow is like it's just so we were like we had like a hard episode this week that we were breaking and i was talking to damiano marchetti when the producers on our show and damiano is the youngest like experience wise person on our staff but he's really good and he's also at that point where you're just like where you're good and you're in a place where you're learning at a really fast rate and so he asks a lot of really great questions and there's some days of the week where i feel like i'm able to be like well, Damiano, like obviously blah, 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 blah. And actually being in the rush of production and like not feeling like anything was possible. I was like, I don't know. I, I was like, it's just, it's a weird, you never actually feel like you've gotten that much better at it. Like you feel like when you're not making, actively making a story, you can convince yourself, you know what you're doing. But when you're actually making a story, it's like you've done a thousand of them, but like every radio story is broken like everything is missing some piece it's supposed to have and like everything has like some weird interview that didn't go the way you thought it was going to go or like you thought you had an answer and you were wrong and like you're always taking a bunch of things that were not quite what you wanted them to be and trying to just like lash them together in a way that will feel satisfying and you know you you like scrape through every time but it never hits a point where it feels like autopilot ever which is good but like this week i was like really feeling the frustration of it where i was like why do i ever think i know anything about this hey i'm gonna pause things here for a brief word from our sponsor blinkist the world's most successful people have one thing in common. They're hungry for knowledge. And if you're listening to this podcast, you may feel this way. And you may also feel like you don't have a ton of time. Uh, introducing the Blinkist app, over 2,000 best-selling nonfiction books transformed into powerful packs you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Um, stuff like The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. This is stuff you can take all on your way home more knowledge in less time. They are chosen as one of the best apps by Google and Apple uh, for the last two years. Right now, they have a special offer for our audience. If you go to Blinkist.com slash longform, you get a free trial or three months off a yearly plan. When you join today, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash longform. Start your free trial and get three months off your yearly plan. Thank you, Blinkist. Thank you. 
for your learning curve and being able to put out this show, let's say starting not just with Reply All, but from like the first episode of TLDR, is the hardest part the reporting part to learn, or is the hardest part the getting a show out once a week on a schedule part? It's, I mean, I know that they're overlapping, but to me, every time I've like ever encountered you or Alex, Alex is like always like his emotional. You can like take his temperature by like (laughs) how soon he is like supposed to have a new show up. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So part of that is, I think a lot of times at Reply All, like staff wide, we're a bunch of people who take a lot of pride in making something that feels too ambitious for what. Like we like trying to find the better version of the story and we like we like making it hard on ourselves. So part of it's that. And I think part of it is it's just like radio's hard. It's the combination of feeling like you're a reporter with a deadline, but also a person who's about to go out on stage and like maybe people won't laugh at your jokes or think you're interesting. And like it's hard. And I think like Alex feels it in a way that's like exquisitely painful and funny (laughs) i feel it too like i think i think for me the hard thing has been when we started it was just me and alex we were making a show that you know tldr so we made it at wnyc and it was sort of something we were allowed to do more than something that was like you guys are making a show and this is your jobs it was it was more of like a, a side thing and so we'd work on an episode and we'd work really hard and if we didn't like it then we wouldn't put it out yeah and we'd wait a couple weeks and like inspiration would strike or it was it felt difficult at the time but looking back it was very leisurely and at reply all the trade-off the deal has been you'll have way more resources but like you publish and like you publish with a mid-roll break so the stories have to be stronger there has to be two stories the difference is like if you're if you're working a lot i feel like you're just more i feel very aware of my limitations you know what i mean do you start to see patterns in the in these stories though? Or are you like, oh, this story is a like a, this is an episode seventy three or like you know what we need for this one? Yeah, I mean, you see like, there's definitely not a formula because everything ends up being different. But you're like, this is there's a kind of episode we do where we take a simple question and we will follow it with as much like we'll follow it with integrity as far as it can go, and we will get an answer. And along the way, we're going to like take some weird side legs into a bunch of worlds and tell you about them. And so, like, you don't know what those worlds are going to be, and you don't know what the answer is going to be, but you're like, I know the engine of this story. And so I feel like I'm more likely now to, when we're working on a story, be like, okay, this is what I think it's going to be. And sometimes, like, Tim's our editor, like, I'll throw him a, I'll be like, here's the here's the engine of the story. And he'll be like, no, it's not. Like, this is the engine of the story, and you're wrong. But I think I do know, I've, yeah, it's like, I'm like, I've met a person like you before. Basically. When you when you're pitching the stories, when you're in a team, Alex must not be in the room when you're pitching the stories, or you'd be blowing your own spot up. We've been going back and forth on this. Like lately, I've been pushing for us to do a little bit more knowledge of each other's stuff because I I do a, a lot of editing and it makes me feel so like bad to not know what's going on. But like, yeah, like literally, I'll be like, Alex, you should leave the room for this one. Like, this sort of depends on surprise, or Alex will send me out of the room. We have a weird pitch process because we tend to be like, when ideas are new, like when you're pitching, we try to support everything, basically. Mm. Like, even if it feels like a lot of our better stuff have come out of really bad ideas, and we're harder on stories as they go. But our pitches are not, like, we, we will just send people out earlier. Like, people on staff. Like, if Shruti's like, 
I'm kind of interested in this thing. I want to go talk to this person. I don't know what the story is yet. Like we'll go and we'll trust that like collectively we're going to know if we have something. Like I always have a hard time talking about like how we decide which stories we're going to do or, or where we find stories because it feels very much like you kind of just start walking in a direction. And sometimes you think that you know the question of the story, but then you realize it's kind of boring, but there's this other thing. Like they're very like built in the air in a way that is like extremely stressful, but which like is also very fun. <laughs> At what point in the process it does the how we're going to tell this story come in? Like if you've already got the premise, are you also saying, and we're going to tell this story by like the experiences of this person? For me, I need to know. I can't work on something unless the whole time I think I know. And like, usually I'm wrong, but so like, for example, we did a story a while back that ended up, so when it started, it was like, okay, I'd heard about a website where people who were really high logged on and they went to a chat room and they talked to strangers on the internet who just like talk them down. So if you're like 15 and you just tried LSD and you're like really scared, rather than calling 911, Maybe first you would talk to this guy and he would tell you if you should call 911 or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I have like a whole theory of the story. We're going to talk to this guy. He's going to be super compelling. You're actually going to listen to this interview. And in the very beginning, this might have been Tim's idea. Like it's going to feel like almost like you're in an actual like 911 call. And so like I pitched some version of that to Tim and then he pitched his idea back. And like, but we had an idea. It was like a profile of what it would be like to be this human who was just like talking to high humans all day yeah and what kind of like bulk knowledge they've downloaded from talking to thousands of high teenagers because they're gonna have like insight and it's gonna be funny and yeah. it's probably gonna be sources of danger and like like that was not the interview we got the guy was he was really sweet and smart but he didn't want to talk about it was almost like attorney client privilege yeah and it wasn't funny to him so it wasn't gonna be funny but also he thought drugs were basically with exceptions but he thought like the drugs that he was doing were good. And like, so it was like our talking to him, I felt like our version of why the story was going to be good was kind of cheesy and I couldn't push him into it and I didn't want to do it. But the way he talked about hallucinogenics was like very persuasive in a way that I've never found persuasive. And I was interested in that in a genuine human way. And so the new theory of the story was like, okay, Let's do a story about hallucinogenics. And what what's it like when you're in an interview? Like, so it's like you're in the first interview that's theoretically going to be in a sequence that's going to create a show. Yeah. And the first interview is like, I'm not participating with the tone that you're describing. Oh, it I'm sucks. like, like, are you are you mentally pivoting like during the interview? No, I'm like an idiot, and I'm still trying to make the old thing work, and I'm asking him 80 versions of the question, and like just watching him lose respect and <laughs> kindness for me where it's just like you idiot and then like at some point at some point i think you have to just you're just like okay well this this like map did not work and I, my alternate map did not work and so now let's just talk <laughs> and i mean why not yeah but i went out of that interview being like this is a failure and the story is a failure because i had an idea of it and the idea is not true and then it was only because we're small and we have to produce a lot. And so we'll never definitively kill something. Like you're like, okay, that's dead for now. But like, you always remember, like there was like one little piece of like edible food in that trash. can. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're like a few weeks later realizing you don't have anything, you're like, okay, well, what, what could we make out of that one little piece of bread that didn't have mold on it? 
what's it like when you're creating work that's on a spectrum like that? Like, I think very rarely will a writer tell me like that was that was the worst article I've done. Um, it sounds to me like you have like a pretty clear hierarchy, and some of that is about you know, the quality of the results, but that's also about like limiting your ambition for every, you can't do that India call center episode for every uh, episode because you can't send Alex Goldman to India every week. You Not have, now. I mean, right the, now we don't have the budget for it. Uh, someday you will be able to, but um, I'm curious what it's like working on the bottom 50% or the ones where it's just like, uh, we got some reheated lasagna here. We're going to slot this together with something else. Well, so the weird thing is you don't, so sometimes, sometimes our best stories are just like a lot of reheated lasagna. Like that story, we got really curious about hallucinogenics. We talked to this guy who was like a micro dosing genius, like exiled in the Nixon era scientist who'd been running experiments. We ended up getting LSD. Like we did a secret experiment where we didn't tell Alex I was taking it. And then like he had this great reaction and like there was like opportunities to do good writing and like that ended up being good. So it's weird. Like, I think what has happened to me over time is that I'm more like, like while we're working, I'm constantly like, is this good? Do you think this is good? Is this going to be good? But in a larger sense, I try to be a little bit like my job is to do as good a job I can on what's in front of me and be a little bit agnostic about like whether it's like one of the good ones. Cause I've been wrong so much and it's so distracting. Like it's like having a baby and just like constantly trying to figure out how much money they're going to make when they're like 45. Like it's going to get really good or really fine kind of like from like Monday to Wednesday of the week it comes out, but you're going to work for on it for like weeks before that, you know, like I used to write for a little bit. I like wrote it blog. I blogged and you definitely like, I wrote stuff where I was like, well, I hit publish. <laughs> the way that you said that was like, sounded like like the way that someone had introduced that they like did some like <laughs> crime so yeah like i did a little bit of petty theft <laughs> like i'm not clean <laughs> i've sold a f- i've so i've pawned a few things that weren't mine what what do you mean you you blogged so when alex and i start the deal we made to be able to do tldr was we were working on on the media we wanted to do this podcast we didn't get permission and it was like okay you can do the podcast if you blog three times a day on our website because like on the media it had decent web traffic it was like what if we try to build on that by like just doing like normal like here's what happened today here's an opinion about it blogging and, like blogging is like a really really different animal than radio and it, i mean for me in particular it was like it's a different relationship to writing it's and like you have to have a different kind of ego or it felt like it like you like more resilient you have to enjoy like combat in a way that i really don't yeah Cause you don't in audio, you don't have people like responding, like not like fuck that on my podcast. I'm going to talk about why I reply all full of shit. Yeah. And like, that is like actually the joy of not all, but like a lot of blogging is like, actually you're wrong. Actually you're wrong. Like, right. And like not feeling like if someone's attacking your ideas, they're necessarily attacking you or feeling like if they are attacking you, you love it because they're wrong. And like, you're going to say this and like, oh my God, it was, it was very stressful. It's, ironic that that's something that you don't like because I, I feel like that behavior is the most typical online like if you were to uh, show someone an illustration of online culture <laughs> two people like being like you're wrong 
it would be a decent uh, illustration for that Wikipedia entry. Which is like, I like watching that. Like yeah. I consume it all day. Like I like, I just don't want to be in the ring. You know what I mean? Like, but in terms of defining what Reply All is, like when you had the early thoughts about the show, and you're like, eh, it's about internet culture. What did that mean to you? So at the time, it meant two things. It meant we're gonna treat the internet as which now everybody feels this way but the time it felt like kind of exciting was like we're not going to treat things that happen online as fake or dumb yeah and we're not going to treat them as interesting because they happen online like you're going to normalize the internet yeah it's Break a, the fourth wall it's a thing that happens that everybody uses and sometimes it takes normal human behavior and puts it on a very strange scale and that's yeah. going to be accepted and then also it felt like and it still feels like this reporting about the internet and reporting on the internet often moves very fast. People make up their minds about things very fast. And radio is slow. Podcasting is slow. And there's opportunity when when you, when you, somebody does something that seems inconceivable to you and seems like they must be stupid or wrong, you could talk to them and find out why they believe they were, what they were doing. And like usually it's not because they're stupid or wrong. And trying to be curious and like when we can looking for opportunities to like be curious where maybe other people like jumped over it and i think with reply all as more people have come on like the show's changed like i think now what we think about is less there's like a certain kind of story that we really like to tell like we really like stories that just feel like they travel which i guess is an internet thing too it's just like they start in a place and they go to a bunch of places that that first place wouldn't ever predict and every move along the chain makes sense but at the end of it you're like huh like those feel those are the ones where we're like everybody gets excited and like everybody wants to help on it and like it just like took off somehow well when you think of i don't know if you think of these stories in terms of acts but if you were to divide them into acts as commercial breaks often help us yes. think of them in acts i'm very clear on where your stories start like it's like we have a mystery, we have a thing, we're going to try and figure it out, we're going to talk to some people. And then you usually talk to them, you find out some stuff. How do you write the the ends of those stories? Like what what do you feel like the role as as the narrator of the show in saying this is what this means or this is how the story ends? Well, it's tricky. So what I used to think because again, like I grew up so in the church of like this American life, in my mind I was like, you know, a thing happens like people feel things at the end the narrator's job the reporter's job is to sort of in a pretty and smart way like say what they think it meant and then get out of there which is like a kind of story but it's not it's a very basic understanding and actually still like sometimes i like doing that kind of story and sometimes i think it's appropriate what we figured out with reply all that we didn't know with tldr which was totally tim was like we had this story that um our friend lynn had done which is it was great it was about this guy who put an ad in the newspaper pretending he was a time traveler and inviting people to like go back in time with him, which they made a movie about this classified yep. ad. And the thing the movie didn't have was that all these people wrote this guy and all the stories or most of the stories were really sad. Like people want to go back in time because something terrible happened Sure, and they want to change it. And so we talked to him and we talked to, I think we talked to a woman who, who was in prison for murder who had written him and it was good. And then the way I wanted to build that story, I kept wanting to like, come at the end and say something thoughtful or if Lynn say something thoughtful and it was so writing meaning on the end felt pretentious and silly and I kept trying to do it anyway and then Tim was like you guys should go in the studio with Lynn and have her tell you the story 
and talk about it. <laughs> like, just talk about it. Don't come up with something. Just talk about it. And Lynn, in that conversation, said this thing where she was like, I don't understand why everybody wants to go back in time to fix a bad thing. Like, why couldn't you want to go back in time to relive, like, a good thing? Which was nice and small. And then, like, we talked about that. And then, like, Alex said something very funny. And the story felt good and it felt over and it felt, like, processed. But it didn't involve, like, the smart person writes a sentence. So... I think it depends on the story. And I think my tendency, I like writing and I like our stories that are more written and I like reporting stories that are like scripted and whatever. And that's often the wrong thing to do. And it's always the thing I push for. <laughs> so I think it's just figuring out like at that point, what do you need? Like what what's left? Do you have to be very conscious while you're working on the show about like a lot of times on this show, I'm like, stop making so many fucking jokes. Because your jokes never make the show, but they like will end up like interrupting the flow. But then I'm also thinking for you in the scenario you described with Lynn, where it's like, wow, if I make a really good joke, we're done here. Oh, God. But it's weird. Every time I try to do that, I screw it up. Yeah. What I've noticed is if you're the reporter, it's your job to make sure the story gets told in the order it should get told in. If I'm asking the questions, if I'm like hosting... I found the best stuff happens when I'm like listening and the worst stuff happens when I'm trying to fix the story in my head. Like there was actually in this episode we just put out, I was like editing. Well, I was with Truthy and Truthy was editing and we were listening to the dump tape. And there was a bunch of times where Alex had said stuff that was really good and funny. And I was trying to get him to do stuff that I thought I needed him to do. And so I'd kind of like blown by it and I'd screwed it up because of that. Cause I was like trying to drive too hard. It's so hard. That was the thing I kept thinking about this week was just like you're fundamentally always like making radio feels like the meal you make at home when you're basically out of food and it's just like what's in the pantry. Like it always feels like you're making something out of like incomplete parts. And every time you're listening to those parts and hearing that like it's incomplete because of your own stupidity, it's so annoying. When you started the show, there's a lot less things to compare it to. Yeah. Like as these various new formats have entered the podcast world, you know, Serial, which is a This American Life descendant, you know, a, a mini series that spends a bunch of episodes on a single story. Is it tempting to broaden the format or do you have an urge to pursue other kinds of storytelling? Yeah, totally. Like, I think. And I don't just mean within Reply All, I also mean you, PJ Vote. The human being who's yeah. been doing this for most of your uh, working life. Yeah, I mean it's crazy because I'm not. I'm about to hit my tenth year in radio. I think basically half of that has been in the world that I'm in. Yeah, I don't know. I have a list of stories I don't think I can do on Reply All that feel like either they're not radio stories or they're like even though we will go very far from the internet, like they're they're so not internet stories or- They take place before the invention of the internet. <laughs> well, we did, we just did one of those. Like what ends up happening is they, like literally, so last year one of them was like, there was this guy in the like 19, early 1900s who was telling people that he could cure male impotence by sewing goat testicles onto their testicles, which was like not true, but he- there was this whole thing with Spoiler him. alert. Yeah, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> but like, I thought that's a story. It's like historical and you don't have access to the person because they're dead. Like that won't be a radio story. That's perfect for reply all. We did it. It totally worked. It was like, we've kind of found a way to make it feel about technology. It felt like it was actually, he was a demagogue in a way that felt like not 
unresonant with like some things, but I don't know. I, I think like I was lately I was feeling like I look at the shows that I look up to and like I look at this American life and, and I wonder just like how they do it. And I think it's our job to make sure that we're making a thing to please each other and ourselves to, to make it feel like you're coming into work and like that the show feels like it's a reflection of us instead of a thing that's like we're tied to. And so far it's really felt like that. Like it's felt like every time we feel like we're painting ourselves into a corner as far as our listeners expectations, we will do the weirdest thing we're able to imagine and see if it fails. And like those tend to be our like kind of coolest moments. Like we did this 40 hour call in show last year. We we've like, so I don't know. And like, the thing is like, I think the thing that people who don't are outside of, podcasting and radio don't always appreciate is how unlonely it is like how you know you sit in a room and you have your script and then you sit with like a bunch of your friends and like you go through line by line and they're like what if instead of this you said this and like it's so it's such a team sport that the idea of not I feel like real fear when I think about I used to feel like all I wanted in life was like be in this room and I feel like I got into the room and like, I really like the room and like, I feel like a lot of pressure to like preserve the room. Is it an entrepreneur? I mean, do you feel like you're an entrepreneur and a reply all is your product? Are you looking at like, do you go in Libsyn and like, look at your like, Oh, ratings and stuff like constantly. that? Constantly. I guess that's probably not Libsyn for you, but we Libsyn use a megaphone. Like, do you care? Like, yeah. If, okay. So but, if like, if traffic fell off, that would, personally like bum you out well it would bum me out because it's like what we're going to do for fun and entertainment is make a half hour radio documentary pretty much every week which is like it's very stupid like it, it, it's hard and it's expensive and you constantly churn through ideas it's just like it's dumb i'm sure people also when you encounter them don't realize that that's a super ambitious like oh well what's your day job no no, no <laughs> i know i know it's like dude this is like 70 hours a week yeah so and this was like how we were lucky right like you have to tell stories that are good enough that you'll get a little bit of money to make it and like a couple people will like it and they'll come on board. But like the reason I care a lot about the numbers is because the more people listen, the more ad revenue we have, the more I know that like everybody on staff has a job and like we can take trips. And like the thing that happens to everything in media is won't happen to the show this year. Like where all of a sudden it's like, well, that was the heyday. Anyway, half of you have to go home now. And also all the stories have to be about how you love our new sponsor <laughs> and um, the health of the thing feels really important. Do you think that the origins of Reply All being inside of Gimlet, which A, you're one of the first shows in Gimlet, you are the first non- First non-meta. Yeah, yeah the, first, <laughs> the first show that Gimlet made that is not about Gimlet. Yes. And Gimlet itself is one of the first podcast networks that got any, probably someone would object to that, but there's a new wave of podcast networks of which Gimlet was one of the first to gain prominence. Yeah. And there was absolutely like, there's, there's so many people who rightfully are like, oh, you guys invented podcasting. Did you like, there were people doing it, but like in this wave of narrative podcasts being a big thing, Gimlet was like an early prominent thing in this wave in a way that was real. It was part of a wave, uh, the way I think of it, was there was, for the first time, budgets to make original podcasts that were not coming from 
the pockets of the people making those podcasts. Right. And then the expectations on those podcasts were different than when the hosts put the money in out of their own pocket to do it. How do you think that that environment guided what Reply All became? What happened was everybody showed up in radio wanting to work for Radio Lab or This American Life. And there were a lot more people who were capable of that work than opportunities for them. Yeah. And I think the reason Reply All was so lucky is like, like when we left WMIC to go to Gimlet, I didn't feel like worried that it wouldn't work out. I felt worried that we were not moving fast enough, that like a wave was coming and we would just be like paddling behind on a boogie board. And because we did start when we did, our team is made up of people who we knew and worked with. The people that like, if I was stuck on a story and on the media that I didn't know how to break, I'd like walk around the block and like all those people now we work together like on a team. And I think we were lucky. We were like, we showed up right when there was enough money that like we could even exist. But before enough money came in that like a lot of people got the jobs that they should have gotten and like are now pretty happy. So it felt like we kind of got to, if we had to start reply all even like today, it would be very daunting just cause like you'd have to teach people more stuff. Like you'd have to, most of the people on our show have worked in public radio for like five to 10 years. And, and like, I sometimes I'll talk to Bloomberg about it where I think that a lot of the good, like I think This American Life has at a lot of points in their history, like basically you look at them and you're like, they have, there are too many good people working on that show. Like it's an inefficient use of the talent in the system for everybody to be at that one place. But that's like what makes it great. And I feel similarly where I'm like, oh man, there's a lot of people. We're lucky to have all these people in this place. And like, I think the hard thing about podcasting right now actually is there's a wave of really talented people and they're in their places. And there's like, there's a lot of opportunity to make stuff. And there's a lot of people who are talented and new and need time to learn stuff. Yeah. And then there's there's another calling, which is, I genuinely believe that people have room for four or five podcasts in their life. The user experience of podcast listening is not elastic unless you have insane commute. Yeah. So you have people making more and more stuff, more and more things of quality and the audience is getting bigger, but only the very like peak of the mountain of things that people might be interested in are really going to like catch and be sticky. You know, I I'm, consistently uh, humbled that anyone listens to this show based on how many like really exciting new projects that have budgets that are like doing bigger things out there. On the other hand, it would terrify me to be part of one of those bigger budget uh, narrative, more reported models because there's so many people doing it now. I mean, I could have counted at the time when you launched Reply All, I could have counted on my hands how many shows were doing things at that level. Well, and also they're good like they're, they're, they're really good like yeah. I, I felt like there was a period where i was like if you'd asked me like when we started which i guess was three years ago i would have thought there were more there'd be like basically a this american life in like every category of topic and that didn't that has not happened it feels like there's been more sort of lower lift things and fewer like expensive impossible to make things but I don't know, recently, like this year, there's just been more things. Like, are you listening to Ear Hustle? I've not listened to them. It is so good. How much podcast listening do you do? Not that much. Like, yeah. I'm sort of like, I'm like, we have, I can't I, imagine you going home 
at like 11.30 after shipping one of these episodes and like firing up a podcast. Well, either I'm going to feel like I wish we'd done that or I'm yeah. going to be like trying to change it in my head. It's not like super, like I'll, I love listening to comedy podcasts because they're so different from what we're doing. But yeah, I, we had a month where we weren't producing. Um, I'm like scared to say vacation. We had a month of vacation, <laughs> three weeks of vacation. And, uh, and I was just like listening again. I was like, oh man, like people are figuring it out. Like the troops are like arriving. But yeah, I wonder if there's 20 good podcasts, they're going to kill each other. <laughs> like it's not, I think there is a limit. And I think like, even though podcasting is a thing that breeds like real obsessive, joyful listening, I think most, many people feel like they have the podcasts that they want. On the other hand, the flip side of that coin, I will say, is that it also feels to me like the experience of when I was house sitting at a family friend's house and they had HBO on demand. And I watched The Sopranos for the first time. And I was like, that was amazing. Can I get some more stuff like that? <laughs> it's like, no, you have to wait 10 years. That's how I felt when I listened to S-Town. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, that was the best shit I've ever heard. And there isn't another thing to listen to like that. Totally, totally. I think like when we started, Alex Bloomberg's whole theory, he was like, listen, like public radio, which is filled with like brilliant people making great things, but in like each decade they made kind of like, like This American Life was one decade, Radio Lab was like the next decade. And he was like, there has to be collectively as like a human podcasting, that we have to be able to make good things at like a greater rate. And I think if you look at it on like that timeline, the fact that, you know, the 90s gave us This American Life and like the aughts gave us Radio Lab. And then it's like, we get Serial, we get S-Town, we get all these really, we have like an abundance of good things. There's been a few episodes um, of Repile. I wouldn't say it's every single story you report, but many of the most notable episodes are ones where I feel like your personal life can bleed into the story. You've talked about um, suicide and emotional health and like darker periods of your own life. Tell me about the decision to do that and yeah. what, in a show that's running for 38 episodes a year, what does it mean in one of those episodes for you to be like, I've considered suicide? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, where it came out of is like typical of us is, so I'd read this piece by uh, Jamie Kalis about, she wrote really candidly about being depressed and how she like used Instagram through her depression and it was just a great piece. And I was like, I don't know what the story is exactly, but I definitely want to talk to Jamie. I feel like maybe it's just even like an interview with her. And I did the interview and she was great. And when I put it together as a story, the edit notes I got back from Tim and from Peter Clowney, who edited that story as well, they were just like, there's a void in this story. <laughs> like, I don't understand what you wanted to know when you were talking to her. I don't understand why you think this is interesting. Not that those things aren't interesting, but why do you care? And what do you want to know? And it's weird because normally that's the thing that I don't struggle with that much with stories. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I think the reason I was curious, and then like I said, what ended up being in the story, which was like, I, I've had actually a few friends who have been suicidal and have killed themselves. I have struggled with depression. And like the idea for me, I think what had drawn me to Jamie's piece, which I hadn't been able to articulate until they sort of pried it out of me was depression feels very unseeable, even when you've experienced it. And there was something about the way she wrote about it where it felt like she was able to like describe, it's just like weird, 
hazy land that you go to and hopefully come back from and probably have to visit again. But it's very hard to map. And I felt like she'd, she'd done a really admirable job mapping it. And so I said those things. And they were like, well, the piece probably works if you feel comfortable. Like, you don't have to, but like, that's what's not there. And, you know, it felt like I go back and forth about how comfortable I am, like sharing things that are vulnerable or embarrassing. But it felt not nice to not do it like it felt like if you've experienced a thing and the reason you wouldn't want to share it is because it's scary but the reason it'd be worth it is like it could help people it just felt like you should do that and you're around people who are going to make it so it's good like it's not going to be embarrassing or like the other thing that was cool is like we were in that editorial process and i was like guys like just for the record like i don't think it's gonna be a problem but like tell me the bad parts are like, don't be nice to me. Cause I was suicidal <laughs> at one point. Like tell me what's bad. And like the first edit, there's some, there was something that was like a really clunky sentence. I think it was like making a joke. I didn't mean for it too. And I was like doing the read and Peter just like started like hyena laughing. And I was like, Hey, fuck you. <laughs> be like, thank you. You know, like, and you know, it felt good. It felt like, um, people email me about that. And, and I feel like, about it the other thing i'd worried about was like so my friend who had died like i i talked to people around her just to make sure like that was like that was actually the thing that was scary and that was like are they gonna hear something in that that like it this will cause them pain just by existing and like that weird calculation you start to do when something is going to hit more than three people of like how much pain will this thing be in the world cause and how much like pain will like help yeah you can't really claim like no one listens to your show no which is weird um because you're responsible for stuff does the size of the audience like is that a calculation you make when you're doing things like talking about someone's suicide that like actually enough people like listen to this that anything could happen in terms of like it reverberating to anyone yeah and like also just like if you're like being a little glib in how you like characterize somebody or like i feel in the past year more acutely aware of like we're used to thinking of ourselves as such underdogs i think alex and i like because the show started and we were it was so like sort of nailed together and with glue but like yeah no people listen to the show and like human beings who are affected by the things they hear and like you know you you can't be paralyzed by it but you can't be you have to accept the responsibility of it and also there's just stuff that i've shared a lot of times the reporting I end up doing, particularly when it's good or when it, the stuff I feel proud of anyway, is because there is something in my life that I do not know how to resolve. And so that's why I'm interested in it. And like even stories that are kind of silly or small, a lot of times like if you want to do the best version of the story, you know, you have to let some of that stuff in often. But I'll forget, like I will forget the compiled dossier of me a person could have just by like listening to the show that we voluntarily put out. And there's a lot of times where I'm just like, surely there was another story you could have found. And it's just out there. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it strikes me because I will meet people who listen to this show and they'll be like, Oh, is your back feeling better? And no, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking I know about? about your back? And like, and it's also like, that is the thing. Like that is, I listen to long form. I listen to long form because I like story and I like writers and I like hearing writers, but I also listen to long form because I'm like, I'm checking in with Aaron and Max. Like that is part of it. And like, you don't get to be buttoned up and wear a fencing mask. Like 
yourself bleeds through this and it's the weirdest deal in the world. What are the things that those the, those vulnerabilities you described? Like what are what are the pain points in terms of you being out in the reply all land? Oh god, there's so many. I mean, some of it is like just talking about like I did like a segment for Freakonomics a few years ago where they interviewed me about like my OkCupid profile and they had like an economist like sort of be like here's what you should do differently and blah blah blah. And it was exciting and fun and they did a great job. And like, I don't know, do you want the world to know what was on your OkCupid profile four years ago? Like particularly, it's just like, like it feels like getting tickled a little bit. And then like just the the version of me that shows up in Reply All is definitely better than me in, in real life. Like it's like edited by smart people who are protecting me from myself. But like, I think every, almost every part of me is in the show. And there's just so much about like you look in the mirror of who you are like there's so many stories where part of what actually makes the story work is that I'm you know a stuttering coward it's like it's just a weird deal and it's weird to actually run into somebody who's like hey I recognize your laugh I listen to the show and like they do know you like they like they don't obviously there's a gap and obviously it's mediated but like they know things about you that like maybe somebody you went to high school with that you didn't talk to that much doesn't know about you it's like yep. a weird deal and it's like worth it but it's strange and I didn't ever think about it before we started and I didn't ever, you know, when I started, my goal was to be a producer of narrative stories on the radio. At no point was I like, you know, people are gonna know about you in a just normal way, you know? You describe part of the ethos of the show as an underdog, but I remember when the show first came out, it was like in the top 10 for a while. And it's consistently, it's not really an underdog anymore, at least like in like ranked amongst podcasts. It's a, uh, it's a dog. Yeah. You're, I think we're a, now, a I think we're a normal sized dog. And commensurately, you are now the proprietor and host of a, of a successful podcast. Like how is it different for you now that a lot of people are listening and, you're like you're no longer a fa- you're no longer a failure. I know. <laughs> well, first I got a plaque that said no longer a failure. It's weird. It's super weird. It's like mostly it's really great. Like it's great that everything is easier. Like getting someone literally to talk to us for a story tends to be easier than it was. Even like not even explaining what podcasts are as often is easier. Editorial decisions are less based off like what we can afford to do and more like what we want to do. And it feels really cool to get recognition for your work. And it, and like also podcast audiences, unlike most of the people who are exposed to your work are there because they want to be exposed to it and they like it and they're nice. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like I feel like with, you know, medium sized power comes like great responsibility, like where I just want to make sure that we don't like harm people and when you're reporting it's easy to harm people not in like huge terrible ways where you like tell people to take a radioactive supplement but like you just really want to make sure you're getting everything right and like you really want to make sure when you screw up you own it and apologize and like it's scary to be making something that people react to and it's scary to be open to criticism and the temptation is always going to be to be like anybody that doesn't like anything we do is a jerk and an idiot and I think the more things are working, the like more it's really your job not to do that. And like, like it's a lot of just weird ego fencing yourself. Um, and that part's that part's tough. And um, yeah, I don't know how people who are like overdogs do it, like how they just stay cool and humble and not like 
monsters. I like I feel like I like having just had like one sniff of like the wine of that stuff. I'm like, whoo, that'll, that'll really get you. <laughs> um, all right. For the uh, small minority of people listening to this show who have not listened to Reply All, can you recommend one PJ Vote episode that you, you would start with? Yeah. Okay. So we did one last fall called um, Boy in Photo that I'm really proud of. And it's very us. Like it's... Um, the reason I ask you this is because I don't think anyone has solved the I haven't listened to the show and it's got two years going. What am I supposed yes. to do now? Question. Yeah. So I'm giving it straight to the creator. Yeah. Boy in Photo, if I'm going to suggest one that I did, Alex, that last one, Long Distance, was very good and is a very nice entry point to both the strangeness of him as a human being and the genius of him as a human being. And Truthy, if you don't mind feeling possibly sad, the cathedral. And if you want to not feel sad on the inside, um, and Fia Milk Wanted. Uh, thank you, PJ Vo. Thank you. And that was the second part of Longform's interview with Reply All. Uh, thank you very much to PJ Vote. If you missed the first part of this interview, which was with Alex Goldman, that should be in your feed. Check it out. Uh, both episodes were edited by Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Angela Velez. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. Check them out and their stories. They're incredible. Our sponsors today were Blinkist. Thank you, Blinkist and MailChimp. Thank you always, MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.